You're supposed to get to the Ephesians. We started a new series looking at this great book of the Bible last week. We looked at the overarching message of Ephesians. Um, last week and this week we come now to Paul's introduction of, of this great book. Hear God's word. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. So short reading this morning. It is just an introduction. But introductions can be really, really important. There's some really famous introductions, whether it be of letters or of, of books. So let's see if you can pick up on some of these fairly, maybe they're fairly well-known or of, of prominent works of, of literature. Uh, if you can pick up on these introductions. Here's one here, uh, from a particular book. It is a truth universally acknowledged. These are the first lines of the book. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anybody have a guess? Oh, Pride and Prejudice. We got uh, so we got that one. So good, we're one for one. Let's see if we can get another one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And this one's we're going to get a little bit tougher on you, but we're going into the Christian realm here. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved the name. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Good job. You guys are doing way better than the first service. All right, fourth. Here we go. This is, I think this would be good for you. Some of you kids may get this. Where's Papa going with the axe? Charlotte's Web. E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, right? That actually is the whole theme. We're going to get to this. We're actually seeing the whole theme of Ephesians. It's caught up in the introduction. It's the same thing with E.B. White. It's a story about a pig trying to save his life or a spider trying to save a pig's life in an odd way. It was a bright and cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. 1984, George Orwell. Man, you're just killing it, Mandy. Um, Amanda. All right, very good. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. For some of you younger folks, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, of number four Privet Drive, we're proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Thank you, yes, and all God's people said Harry Potter. And lastly, Once Upon a Time by Brothers Grimm. All right, Grimm's Fairy Tales. Now, this introduction that we have with Paul seems fairly uh, rudimentary at the beginning, right? We have everything you'd see at a good, at a, on the front of a letter, right? This is no elaborate piece of work. It simply states who's writing it, the author, who's receiving the letter, the audience, and it gives a salutation. That's a word from Charlotte's Web, too, isn't it? Salutation. Um, that was, must have been unconscious in my mind to put that word in there. A salutation from Paul to the church, to his audience. So author, audience, greeting. But like so many other introductions, this one is not simply giving facts. There's actually a connective tissue between who the author is, who his audience is, and the nature of his salutation. There's a common thread that runs through them, and it's this. We've already sung about it. It is Grace. Grace is the, the thread that runs through the entirety of the introduction. In that, we get a foreshadowing of so much of what we're going to see in the rest of the book. And so if I were to summarize the introduction or restate it this way, bringing out what, what it's trying to communicate, that the introductions of, introduction of Ephesians, is here we see, is a greeting. Here, it should be on the screen for you. A greeting with the grace and peace of God being given by a man saved and called by grace to Gentiles made saints by the grace 
of Jesus. And so we're going to look at each of those in their turn. We're actually going to begin with the end, with the greeting, and then we'll jump to author and then audience. So let's look at the first. We're going to look through that whole phrase in bit by bit. First, we see that the introduction of Ephesians is giving us a greeting with the grace and peace from God. What is being extended in this greeting from Paul? It's a blessing. He wants them to experience and know the grace and peace that is theirs from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says to them, what's important here is, it is who they're to receive grace and peace from. He doesn't say to them, hey, I want you guys to get grace and peace from me, Paul, to you. That's not what he wants. That's, that's nice, a nice sentiment if we said, say something like, hey, send my love. But that is not what he's asking for here. Paul is saying, I want you to know the grace and peace that is from God. That's where you're going to receive grace and peace. So we're going to look at each of these in turn. Grace from God and peace from God. We're going to spend more time on grace because we dealt with the peace of God issue a little bit more last week. So we're going to highlight grace from God more this morning in the greeting. So grace from God. This is what he longs for them to have, to experience. What is grace? If you've been, spent much time in the church, uh, you may have heard grace defined at one time or another, and it's usually given as grace is God's unmerited favor. I want to give you a little bit more specifics to the definition, though. Grace is God's unmerited favor for sinners, and that grace is enacted with many gifts of saving kindness. The spring and flow from which Grace comes is the heart of God. And this is really important because a component, a critical component of understanding grace in the Bible is that it is utterly unmerited, which means there is nothing in you that is drawing the grace out or creating the grace in God. Grace is wells up from within his heart and is, is poured forth from his heart towards unmeriting objects of his grace. Grace is to give it an illustration or a word picture is not a negative polarity, thinking of magnets. It's not a negative polarity waiting for some positive polarity and the other object to draw it out. Like a magnet reaches out to draw steel. There is nothing in you naturally that draws the grace of God out from him. It is simply comes pouring forth from him. And so grace is the mainspring. What I also want you to see in this definition is the mainspring of all of God's saving acts towards mankind. It is God's grace that sets all the wonderful things that we read about and study about all the works of God in our salvation. It is grace that is behind each of those acts. When I say to a, my, one of my children, that you, and I tell them they have my favor, that comes with actual acts of grace that, with it. It's not disconnected from my favor. And so because they have my favor, they get physical affection, and they get provision, and they get care, and they get words of affirmation. And this is why Paul says grace is indeed is the enacting of saving gifts, is enacted in saving gifts. In, or, in short, I would say this. Grace saves. Now, certainly, Jesus saves in dying on the cross for you, and the Holy Spirit saves in calling you, in effectual calling, in the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Those things are true, but why did Jesus come to save us? Because of grace. Why does the Holy Spirit invade your life to uh, regenerate your heart? Because of the grace of God. This is why Paul says in Titus 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What brought salvation? 
Salvation comes courtesy of God's grace. And so grace is the mainspring of all God's savings acts. And we can see this from beginning to end, from before time began, and it's the where all of history is going to end is God's grace. Let me just run through redemptive history. What you're going to find is every point of redemptive history, you are elbow knee deep in grace. For example, when God chose you before time, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says this, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, right? No merit on our end, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages begin. Grace was there before you were created. When we think of the work of Jesus and giving himself up on the cross, what do we find there? We find grace. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's the cross. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So why is the cross and why is the cross, why is there salvation for you through the cross? Because of God's grace. When we think of God's salvation, the Spirit coming down to indwell us and regenerate us, what do we find there? You guessed it. We find grace. Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me, by what? By his grace. We are called by God by the Spirit, by his grace. Even when faith shows up, our faith is an effect of it's a gift of grace. Acts 18.27 says this, and this is talking about Paul. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So why do you have faith? Why do you believe? Because of God's grace in your life. Your justification justification is God's act where he declares you as right in his sight. How are you justified? Romans 3.24, and you're justified by what? His grace as a gift. So your justification, the spiritual gifts that you have in order to do ministry is of grace. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1. And at the end of all things, when, when God's salvation is revealed to us and we see clearly what we see there is God's grace and ultimately what part of who God is will be worshiped and glorified. It says this in Ephesians 1.6, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why we worship God. In other words, all that redundancy and that whole like running through all the aspects of God's saving work and redemption, I want you to see and make the connection that grace is everywhere. You cannot come in contact with any part of God's salvation work in your life and in this world without coming in contact with God's grace. Grace has come to us because of the awful realities of sin and our lack of merit, but that's what should make grace so wonderful. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. And therefore, if you know yourself to be a sinner, then grace should be a sweet word to you. In fact, grace is a word for sinners. In fact, only those who know themselves to be sinners will find that their heart leaps when they hear the word grace. In fact, it's a good rule of thumb that you can know where you stand spiritually and how you respond to God's grace in your life. Can you sing as we're going to sing at the end? That and say, I was a wretch, and it was God's grace. Wretches love the word grace because we so desperately know that we need it. And as a result of the actions of God, 
The grace of God, that's one greeting. The other part is the peace of God. As Because of the actions of God's grace, you can now experience peace with God. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father. Peace now describes the condition when God is our friend. And all as well as between us and God. We tend to think of peace being simply the, the lack of enmity. And that is certainly true. We saw this a little bit last week. That Jesus comes in order to put an end to our enmity, our fight, and to reconcile us to God. But the word peace in the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Which refers to something far richer than simply a state of no warfare. But it actually brings everything into the relationship that it becomes all that it was meant to be. There's full restoration in your, your relationship with God. It's not simply that you're no longer fighting with him and he's not fighting with you, but you're actually brought back into sweet, intimate communion with him. And therefore, peace is to find your soul at rest, full of delight, because everything is right between you and God. I love how an old commentator named William Hendrickson describes peace with God. He says it is this. Peace with God it is the smile of God as it reflects in the hearts of the redeemed. It is to know when you walk out this door and when you go throughout your day, the Father God looks with you upon you with a smile, with affection. That's the peace of God and to know it. The longing of Paul's heart, therefore, is that for those of you who read this book, everybody, that we would be recipients of God's grace, God's favor, and that we would know the smile of God in our life. Now, just as a quick aside, as an application, isn't it so great all that he, the, the thickness of the, the beauty that he communicates in simply a common greeting, it's a letter. And I would say that there, there's something should, there should, we should rise above simply, even the beauty of it is in our common greetings. Even as you walk in the church, you can bless others with a greeting. That grace can even take for the form of a common greeting when you walk in. That's why Paul even says in other places, greet one another with a holy kiss. Because it's an outward working of, the, of a, a common or a greeting of graciousness. An activity of grace towards others. You have my favor, even into physical affection. Now, listen, no one would experience it as grace if you give them, you know, give them a big, huge, wet kiss on the lips. Especially now. Usually not ever, but especially now. But you can hug each other. You can give each other some dap as a means of expressing grace, even in a common greeting. Now, here's the question. Where does a writer, a pastor, a preacher, an apostle like Paul develop this longing that those to whom he communicates with would experience grace and peace in their life? Is Paul simply using these words grace and peace because they sound really nice? Is this the antiquated religious vocabulary of someone who has spent way too much time in church? And so this is just how we talk, where we just call everybody brother and sister, and we just love to use words like hope and peace and grace and mercy. Is that what he's after here? I would say no. I would say no because the way Paul talks about grace and peace, the way he'll elaborate on it in the, in the book of Ephesians and in other places where he writes. But also I would say no because Paul is a man greeting others with a longing that they would know grace and peace because he himself is a man who has experienced grace and peace. And when you've experienced this, you want others to experience it. And in this, we go to the next part of our phrase of what's going to happen in the introduction here. Here it is, a greeting extending the grace and peace of God, and that greeting comes from the author, which is a man saved and called by grace. You see, the story of the author of this book is a story of God's grace, of an enemy being, made, being brought back into peace with God. And that's who Paul was, right? Paul is the author of this book. It says, Paul, 
an apostle by the will of God. Now, suppose this is what it's like to the, the original, to the early church, if they had heard of Paul writing a letter to them. It would be like I were to pull out of my pocket this morning a certified letter, a letter and the letter, and it's a written to you, the church, and here's how the letter begins. Welcome, church. I am Hugh Hefner, a servant of Jesus Christ, to you, all my fellow believers in Christ Jesus. Now, if I said that name and said it is that person writing you out of a longing for you to experience the grace and mercy of Jesus, you would go, something radical happened in that person's life. Something transformed them, and that would be the same when the word Paul was the beginning of a letter. Paul, who is he? Here's his background. Paul, he is born in Tarsus, which is a, a lays at the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul was born of Jewish parents. In fact, his father was a Pharisee and a scribe, and he, uh, he was given the name, the Hebrew name Saul. Goes back to the first king of Israel, Saul. But having been born in a non-Jewish city in a Roman province, they also gave Paul the name, or Saul the name Paul. That that was his essentially Gentile name. So it's like, hey, when you're hanging out with the Gentile kids, just tell them your name is Paul. Because we don't want you to get beat up for being named Saul. Now, I don't know why that would be much of a difference, but apparently it did. So his name is Saul, and he's his Hebrew name, but Paul is his Gentile name. And Paul receives some of the best philosophical and religious education you could receive in antiquity. At an early age, he went to study in Jerusalem under a well-known teacher named Gamaliel. And Paul quickly rose to the ranks of the religious scholars and the religious leaders of that day, so much so that by the time he was at the age 30, 30 he had far outstripped everybody else of his age as a leader amongst the religious zealots of the day. And he actually says that his zeal for the faith went beyond all others. And how did Jesus, in his zeal, respond when Jesus and Jesus' followers show up on the scene? Is Paul excited to see Jesus? No, absolutely not. Let's actually hear about who Paul was before he was saved in his own words. Acts 26, verse 10 and 11, this is Paul giving part of his own testimony. And he said this, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my boat against them. And I punished them in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And I love this description of himself. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is who Paul was an utter and abject enemy against God and against Jesus Christ. He was filled with a blind rage against Jesus and his followers. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. But then in the full flower of his zeal, you can read about this in Acts. Paul's on the road to Damascus to go persecute more Christians. He's actually exporting his persecuting trade to other places. And it is there on the road to Damascus that he runs smack dab into who? The resurrected and living Jesus. And like that, here we go, a man who is an enemy of God is transformed into an apostle of Jesus Christ. See, here's a man who everything about him, his family heritage, his training, his whole life has prepared him to be an enemy of Jesus. And yet by the grace of God, God simply flips it on its head. And so therefore, the very mention of the name Paul, his very story is a living illustration of what? Unmerited favor. Someone who is an enemy running from God as fast as possible. In fact, trying to attack God in, every, in Jesus in every single way. And this is actually how Paul saw his life. That his life was one blood bought by grace. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 and 10, he says this. 
for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. The very presence of his name, the very connection of this name, Paul, to the name Jesus shows the very fourth, the theme of this letter, the foreshadowing of what Paul is going to expound upon in the book of Ephesians, which is God's grace taking enemies and making them friends of God. His very name displays the greatness of God's grace. But not only that, not only in saving Paul, but how does Paul describe himself? What's the title he gives to himself? He says, I'm Paul the apostle, an apostle. Now God in his grace saves Paul, but then he doesn't stop there. In his grace, he also gives Paul a new purpose for his life. Now the title that Paul most often used for himself to describe himself is apostle. Whenever Paul writes a letter to a church or to a particular person, he says, I'm an apostle. Now why does he harp on that so much? Well, there's actually something that's really important to what he's trying to do there. He's trying to ground very early on in the letter that who he is and what his office is means that you should listen to him. In other words, the role or the office of apostleship came with great authority. The, way, what the call here is that Paul wants us to do is to feel the weight of his words as pressing in on your life as being God's words. Now, let's try to avoid some confusion here in your life, either in the past, clear up confusion from the past, or keep you from being confused in the future. There are those in our day and age who, in certain circles, will call themselves apostles. And one can certainly be an apostle, but only in the most generic sense. There's two ways in which the New Testament uses the word apostle. In its generic sense, which means to be sent or a messenger, and there's at least three times in the New Testament where people are sent out by another group of people, and they're said, hey, they're messengers, and it uses the Greek word for apostle, apostello. But the more often the way the word is used is as the office of apostleship. And by that it used, we can call that big A apostleship. The generic is little a apostleship, which you and I can be. We are sent ones into this world to communicate the gospel. But we cannot be big A apostles. Big A apostles were those a special group who were called to found the church. They spoke and lived with the very authority of God. This was the 12 apostles. Matthias replacing Judas in the early part of Acts. And Paul claims to be one of these apostles. He claims to be essentially the ugly duckling at the end of the row. Now, there were three prerequisites in order to be considered an apostle. I'm going to show how Paul fills each of these. First, in order to be an apostle, in the big A sense, having the, the official office of apostle, was you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. You had to see Jesus in his resurrected and glorified form. Now, you ask, where did, you, where did Paul see that? Well, on the Damascus Road. It's very clear in that account that it is Jesus revealing himself to Paul. Physically in his glory and revealing himself to Paul. Second, an apostle and had the office of apostle had to be empowered by God with confirming miraculous powers. Miraculous powers were not just given you know, here and there for just any, anybody. They were given to the apostles in particular to confirm their authority. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says this. This is early on in the church life. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through who? The apostles. In fact, in multiple occasions, Paul will say, for example, in 2 Corinthians 12, will say, hey, remember when I did many miraculous works in your midst. 
He's saying, listen, I did the miraculous works that confirm my authority as an apostle. And then the third prerequisite to be have, hold the office of apostle was you were given the special authority by Jesus to teach the truth of God. For example, we see that Jesus does this for his apostles. That he's, I'm going to give you my words to communicate my truth to the people. He says this in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. He says this to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And the reason for that is so that they can communicate it to the rest of the world. So they can write the New Testament. So they can be eyewitnesses to what Jesus has done. And the apostles, what we see throughout the New Testament, and specifically Paul in this case, had the audacity of claiming that they weren't simply teachers, but they were actually claiming to have the authority of God in their words. Hear this from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. He said, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or if he is spiritual, he should acknowledge that these, the things I am writing to you are a what? A command of the Lord. He says, I speak the words of God. Now, this is no one else gets to do this. After these original apostles died, died off, there is, we do not have, where people can come and add to God's word. No one can show up and say, thus they at the Lord's. No one has this form of authority, but Paul does. And here's what this means for us as we get dive into the book of Ephesians. We should listen. Because Paul comes to us speaking with the authority of God himself. Therefore, when we run into some things in Ephesians that are going to be rather uncomfortable for us, Things like God's electing work in the world before time. Or being saved, not any at all by your own merit, but by his work and his work alone. Or when we get to the second half of the book, where it talks about children obeying parents and husbands and wives submitting to each other and dying to each other, to their self. These are things that we don't like. And Paul's saying, yeah, but I come with the, the, the command of the Lord. And so we listen to what Paul says. And in this, we see the beauty of what God has done, Right? He's taking one who saved by grace, but then gives him a high and holy calling, even one who he calls Paul to speak for him in this world. And then lastly, I want you to see how Paul describes his apostleship He's in his salvation is by the will of God. God did not look out and go, hey, hey guys, um, anybody want to be an apostle? Hands, hands raised, anybody? Paul? Oh, Paul? Cool. You're an apostle. No, Paul did not volunteer for this assignment. God, in fact, Paul was doing everything he possibly could not to have this assignment, not to be saved. He was an enemy of God, and God said, you know what? That Paul on the Damascus Road, he's mine. This is by my will. I am going to make him my son and my ambassador in this world. In fact, this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. He says this, of this gospel, I was made a minister. It is not, hey, I signed a pledge card to go do missions. It was not, hey, I chose to be a minister. No, he's like, no, God made me. God made me be a minister. Don't ever say that God won't make somebody do something. God made Paul be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so grace is God saying, I am making you mine. And not only that, am I going to make you mine, but I'm going to shape you and form you for my purposes. And the beautiful thing is God is still doing this today. Now, you're not gonna, he's not going to call you to be an apostle in the big A sort of way. But he is going to call you to be his child and to be his apostle in the little way sort of way. 
God is still rescuing people by his grace, giving them a purpose by his grace, making them become sons and daughters of the king, and giving them a purpose into this world. It is by a work of his hand, of his grace. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 says that God appointed him to service, though he used to be, and here's our, these are Paul's words, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of God. And he concludes his retelling of the wonders of what God has done in his testimony in 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15, saying this, And the grace of the Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In other words, what's the point? Paul is saying, if I could be saved... And if God could do wonders in my life and through my life, how much more you? He is still doing this work. And therefore, what I would say is this. Don't ever believe that you cannot be used by God because of the salaciousness of your past. The same passion. I want you to actually see God's sovereignty and his goodness, the very things that made Paul such an enemy of God, that God will form and transform to be used in his great work through Paul's life. For example, Paul's known for his great zeal and passion for persecuting the church. Well, God's going to take him and transform him. And now, how is he going to use that zeal and passion in Paul's life? To plant churches. Paul becomes the great theologian of the church, seeing that Jesus truly was the fulfillment of the hopes and promises and all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament. Now, what prepared Paul to be that guy for the church? The fact that he grew up in a scribe's household, had the best education, and as a good Jewish boy who was a Pharisee, he would have memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. And so he is rightly prepared to be one who will communicate the beauty of Jesus seen throughout the Old Testament. And therefore, the beautiful truth for us, for you and me, is that God will take the very energies that God, that you used for sin and selfishness, and he will now use it for his glory and for grace in your life and in the life of other people. That is good news. So we've seen the author, we've seen the author, we've seen his greeting. Now finally, we see the audience. To Gentiles made saints by the grace of Jesus. It's our third point. Here we are introduced to the audience, and we're just going to do a basic look at the audience as well. They're found in two locations, a physical location and a spiritual location, as we hear, see Paul refer to them. First, their physical location. It says, to the saints in Ephesus. Now, understand this. This is primarily or probably a, a circular letter. This is a general pastoral letter. And so, in fact, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Ephesians, the oldest of manuscripts, does not have the phrase in, in Ephesus in it. Most scholars believe that they, it was actually probably maybe left blank, and that when it would reach a certain church, that they would, you know, you fill in the blank. So to the, to the saints in Crete, to the saints in Podunkville outside of Ephesus, but primarily it probably first went to the city of Ephesus and then was to spread out from the church there into the surrounding areas. But so, but so understanding who what Ephesus is is still helpful for us as we read this book. Ephesus is in modern-day western Turkey. In Acts 19, we see that uh, Paul preached there. In fact, spent um, uh, two years there, some of his longest time in the various missionary journeys. And the city of Ephesus is known for its dark spiritual history. They had a god named Diana, or a goddess named Diana, and the city revolved around the worship of this goddess. In fact, Ephesus was best known in the world for its temple to Diana, which was, it was and is considered one of the um, wonders of the ancient world. And the life in the city of the, of the whole city revolves around the worship of this goddess. 
Many in the city practiced dark arts and magic as a part of their service to this goddess. They had a highly sexualized form of worship. In fact, the temple was was so large in part to house the hundreds and even thousands of temple prostitutes in which sexual acts would be committed as an act of war or a form of worship. So don't think that our culture today has anything on the city of Ephesus. We're simply, there's nothing new under the sun. And indeed, the core part, though, of the economy and the commerce of the city was built around the cultic worship of Diana. But when the gospel came, it came with power. And we know from Acts Acts 19 that Paul spends his two years there. And in fact, the gospel spreads with such power throughout this, this city that so many people become Christians that ultimately the reason why Paul has to leave is because those who are manufacturers of little Diana goddesses or other cultic tools that they need for worship, this whole like factory system in Ephesus, they rise up and say, hey, our bottom line is being hurt because these people have stopped worshiping Diana. The whole economic system of Ephesus flipped upside down, and they riot to get rid of Paul. This is Ephesus. This is their history. And so that's their physical location. It's a bit about their background. But more importantly, I want you to see their spiritual location. He's writing, Paul says, to the saints and faithful in Christ. Now, real quickly on each of these. First, saints. Saints is a favorite term uh, in the Bible to describe the people of God. In fact, it is the second most often used term to describe God's people. And what is the meaning of this word saints? It actually has two two different ways in which we understand it. It comes from the the root word for holy or set apart. And it refers to two different ways we can understand our holiness, our sainthood. One is positional holiness. In other words, that we are simply set apart by God. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are morally pure, but you are positionally set apart. For example, in the Old Testament, in the temple, there were things that, items, bowls, tools that they had in the temple, and they were called holy to the Lord. That means they were set apart for a specific purpose. A hammer in the temple cannot be morally pure. They're morally neutral, but it's set apart for the work of God. The other way in which we think of holiness or sainthood is moral purity, that you come to a place of moral perfection. And when Paul calls the, these people in Ephesus saints, he is referring to their positional holiness, not their moral perfection. It would make no sense if Paul is not, Paul is not saying to the Ephesian Christians that they, so by calling them saints, he's not saying, hey, you people who are morally perfect and morally pure. He instead he is saying, you are a people who have been called out. God is taking you from the embers of hell, from the very temple of Diana, and I have set you apart, and I have called you to be my people in the city of Ephesus. Now, there is a history that all of us have with this word, though, that we need to understand if we're to apply this correctly. For so many of us, when we hear the word saint, we think what? Super Christians. We think of those who are, have been ordained as saints. And Now, it is totally cool for us to honor the saints of old. In fact, the scripture says, give honor to those who are worthy of honor. And yet, we should not ever consider that saints are super Christians. Actually, it's quite a run-of-the-mill plain term, right? It's the second most used word to refer to us. Therefore, what I would love you to hear instead of saints as being super Christians, instead hear that when you hear the word saints, just hear plain old simple Christians. And you can even refer to yourself as a saint. I'm Saint Andrew and Saint Cherry, and we had good old Saint Joe earlier in this first service. So we have 
plain old saints. That's who we are. And then the other way he describes this is what? We are believers in Christ Jesus. It simply refers to our faithfulness, that we believe in Christ. These are common words. Now, I want to draw this out in this application as to why this introduction, this simple, plain way of referring to you as saints and believers, that's who you are, that the beauties of this book are just for plain Christians. And the point I want to make here is this, is that this book is not written to theologians. This book is not written to the intellectual elite. It is not written simply to pastors. There are some who think that a serious study of the kind that we're going to engage in the book of Ephesians is simply too difficult or perhaps it's simply just unnecessary to get into all these theological weeds. If you just tell me Jesus loves me, that's good enough for me. Let's move on. That's what they think. And there is a well-entrenched stream that has always been present within the church that we would call anti-intellectual. We see it in the history of fundamentalism in American Christianity, in which there is a sense in which it is true for us today that we go, you know, theology and these nuances, this is just divisive and it's unnecessary. Let the pastors and the theologians and those people who are wired that way have Ephesians. This is a problem Actually, there's a book in 1994 by an American um, Christian historian named Mark Knoll who was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in which he begins the book this way. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's actually not much of an evangelical mind. That's a burn, in case you didn't notice. In fact, in matter of you, now this is going way back, but I don't think it's any less true. In 1983, Oz Guinness said that I think that if the letter to the Romans was written to the average church today, it would be dismissed as overly intellectual. The same can be true for the book of Ephesians. In other words, the doctrines contained in this wonderful letter for Paul are not meant for the intellectual elite. They are not meant simply for the left brain. They are meant for plain old, old shucks, country kind of Christians. Because that's who it was written to. And so we are to pay attention. And now, I don't say all that to fuss at you and say that you're not very intellectually engaged. In fact, whose fault is it if the people of God are not taught the deep truths of Scripture? The guys who God has called to teach the Scriptures to them. So the call for me is not to, for, in saying this, is not to run from the deep truths. That's the call for me. And the call to you is not to complain when we go deep, mining deeply for the great treasures of God's grace. And I believe that if we do so, it will mean really good things for you to engage your mind, as we said last week, to engage your mind with the thoughts of God after him. Because you know what God's thoughts are for you? We heard about it earlier. His grace. That what we're reading about in Ephesians is simply an elaboration so that you can hear better and understand and know and experience more deeply the smile of God upon your life. And so we have to study deeply. Now, in conclusion, I want to bring these things together. I want to show you that in God's plan and in his sovereign providence, it's so good what God has done in calling Paul. You see, I want to bring off our audience and greeting together. Paul's story is important to understand how his story collides with his audience's. It says this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. I love, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Of this gospel, that's a really preachy thing to say, but it's true. I don't think I've said that very often, if ever here. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to who? Gentiles. That's who the church in Ephesus is. 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, what this is what Paul is saying, what we see in the very introduction here is this is a book written for Gentiles, written by the one who God has specifically called out of darkness into light to be the one who will be the preacher to Gentiles. Paul is showing how God in his infinite wisdom and plan and saving Paul also is bringing about the salvation of Gentiles. In other words, Paul sees himself as a snowball effect of God's grace in this world. This is in in short words of this introduction. What we see here is what I would call the beauty of the rolling stories of grace. That one story of grace leads to a thousand other stories of God's grace in this world. Like a snowball, and Paul is simply one little snowflake rolling down a hill, and God says, but you're going to see the damage I'm going to do with this snowflake. I'm going to create an enormous snowball of my grace. And the beautiful truth is this, as we enter into this book, you and I now get to partake. You and I now get to be people who drink from the deep well of God's grace from this brother, the one who is called to reach Gentiles, us. And that is the great truth, that Paul's story in this moment is colliding with your story. And it tickled me this week as I thought about this, that I'm also called to be your preacher. And I thought about this, which was kind of funny, that why in the world, it's a mystery to me. It's funnier to say mystery in an English accent. It's a mystery to me as to why I am your pastor sometimes, why you have to put up with me, and frankly, why I have to put up with you sometimes. And the beautiful truth, the beautiful truth is this, for both Paul's story to the Ephesians and my story with you is is this great thing. Because what we know about God's grace is I may not be the best pastor in the world, but in God's story of grace in your life, I'm the best pastor for you, at least for today. Then that is a good thing. I don't understand it. And you don't either. And if you don't like it, understand this. God's mercies are new every morning. (laughs) You've had enough of my grace. Let's pray. And then you can go out and extend it to others. Oh, gracious God, you are so good to us to be writing grace, your story of grace and mercy into our lives. And so, God, as we get ready to dive deeply into the sweet truths of your, of of just all the, the, just, the manifestations of your grace that we're going to see in this book. I pray two things for us that we've already sung this morning. One, that you would reveal to us by your spirit how unbelievably wretched and vile we are, showing us the depths of our sin. And then, Lord, like a freight train, would you then show us how much more your grace extends beyond our deepest sins. Would you do that for us? So that we are enamored by your grace and your mercy and that we long to extend it to others as Paul does to the Ephesians. So write stories of grace into our lives and then through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.